Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. This week, I'm joined by a friend of the show, Max, to chat about David Bruckner's film adaptation of Adam Neville's supernatural woodland horror novel, The Ritual, which is currently streaming on Netflix. How's it going, man? It's going well. How about yourself? Not too bad, you know, just trying to stay busy what with still being in lockdown and all. Yeah, heard that. Uh, so generally, when I have a new guest on, the first thing I like to do kind of as an icebreaker is ask uh, what their first horror movie they watched that kind of scared them as a kid. Uh, so it's kind of, so the first one I'd, I'd have to say was uh, The Blair Witch Project. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. So my quick anecdote, my brother, my older brother took me to see it in theaters. So, I mean, he can... I was way too young to see it, and he uh, he kind of pushed me to see it, and he was very insistent, so I saw <laughs> it. I got maybe 10, 15 minutes into the movie, and I had a jacket over my head. I had to listen to <laughs> <laughs> The Walkman, and it was, it was way over the top. It, I did not have a good time, but yeah, I'd say that was the the least fun I've ever had at the movies before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, it's usually the, uh, the common denominator for most of these first scary movie experiences is that we either watch them through our fingers or we watch them with like a jacket over our head yeah. or with our fingers in our ears humming. Yeah. It was just uh, way, way too much. And, uh, he, he refused, he made me sit through the whole movie. You know, he, mm-hmm. I had to, <laughs> he didn't want to miss that's anything. That's a very older brother. Oh, that's yeah. a very older brother thing to do. He did not care. So yeah. <laughs> It was it was a couple of years before I could sleep with the door closed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually a perfect film to mention because I feel like that movie definitely had somewhat of an impact on the one we're here to talk about today, which is the ritual. Hundred um, percent. It was yeah. So it reminded me, um, you know, a couple of scenes when they're walking through the woods and I, and the runes were on the trees. I was like, oh, here we go, <laughs> here we go again. Like, right started having flashbacks and like, all right, witchcraft. Whatever. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was, uh, it, I, I enjoyed it and I did not have to watch it through my hands or with a jacket over go. my head. So <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, a, I thought it was, I thought it was a really good movie. I thought it was really well done. Yeah. So the ritual is about, for those who haven't seen it yet, it's about a group of friends who reunite for a hiking trip to uh, commemorate the life of a friend who dies tragically. Uh, what begins kind of like an idyllic jaunt through the wilderness turns deadly as a shortcut leads them into a place of ancient evil that stalks them. Um, and I think that, again, like the Blair Witch, what, while that was a found footage movie, it definitely kind of captured the idea that like the woods is some place to be scary, even if you're in a group of people. And I think that right. that's kind of like at the heart of the ritual exactly. uh, is that it takes because nothing really overtly scary happens for the first like 40 minutes of the movie probably Mm -hmm. and it's more just about kind of like getting lost in the woods with this group of people um, and kind of makes it portrays the woods in a way that i think is scarier than maybe any other movie kind of like it in terms of just like the woods are so densely packed together like the different sections of the woods that they're uh hiking through that it comes off kind of just like oh this is a place that you could get very easily lost in right i I think the director does a great job with making such a vast area because um, I do a couple, you know, bird's eye view shots, but I think he does a really good job of taking that huge space and making it feel claustrophobic um, yeah. with, you know, the dense trees, um, the tight shots. And it, I think mean, that's what makes 
you, you can have like movies based in the woods and you know that it's a wide space, but here it just, he was able to keep it so tight. Um, it kind of made me feel anxious the whole time, even though they were in, you know, this enormous wood. Absolutely. I think that was, they said that that was part of the reason why they chose to film the movie in Romania was that there was such a variety of different types of woods in the area that they shot. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really telling because like you said, there's a lot of kind of these dense areas that it's almost like suffocating in a way where mm-hmm. they can't, you can barely see through the trees. Like I think a lot of uh, most movies that take place in the woods, like there's trees, but you can still make your way through and stuff right. like that. But in this, it's like they're so closely packed together that it almost feels like the woods are closing in on them. Exactly. In a way yeah. that I found like super uh, claustrophobic, which yeah. is not something I've experienced in a lot of uh, movies yeah. that are set in what's generally such like a wide open area. Exactly. And uh, as they as they transition through the different parts of the woods, there was one scene where they take a break. Luke goes up the hill to mm-hmm. up the ridge to try to you know get a better vantage point. And the woods kind of open up, still pretty dense. So they open up and they open up just enough so he can see the creature kind of, right. you know, stalking them. And, and I thought to move to a place of, you know, the, the denser part where it was really dark and they kind of felt hopeless. He goes up to the top where it's bright, a little more hope. He has an idea. Maybe we can get out of this. And then he looks dense forest monster in the distance. And mm-hmm. just like that, you know, it, it goes from hopeful to hopeless almost immediately. And then he runs back down into the dark, dark, darker part yeah, the, of the wood. The part of that too, I think that's almost scarier than when he sees the monster's hand on that tree kind of like slide away is that they assume they're right at the ridge of the mountain and that the camp or the cabin that's out in yeah. the woods that they're trying to reach basically, which is where they can get help and be saved. They assume that if they get over and they can see the light, that they're almost there. Right. But then once he gets up to the top of that ridge, he realizes that it's just kind of like an illusion of the light mm-hmm. in that there's actually like another 100 or 200 or 300 miles that he still has to hike. And it's exactly. kind of just like as soon as they think, oh, this is the change that they need to get saved. It's kind of just like takes the wind out of their sails. Right. Yeah. No, it's not a change. It's a monster. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you get. It's yeah. a different kind of uh, different kind of uh, obstacle now. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I had actually I had actually seen this once before, um, and I was something I didn't appreciate was how quickly the movie kind of gets going. Mm-hmm. Like the exposition at the very beginning is about five minutes long, where we get the backstory of how all these friends knew each other, and essentially the basis for the hiking trip is that their friend gets murdered in a uh, a robbery gone wrong, basically. Mm-hmm. But then after that five minutes, like we get Luke and he's waking up and he's just, he's on the trip already. And right. The trip is supposed to be a couple of years in the future, almost a decade, I think in the future after oh, wow. the friend dies. And yeah, that was something that they didn't really talk about in the movie, but they said in an interview that I watched, uh, oh. I was just really appreciative of the fact that the movie kind of just gets going and it, it avoids that problem that the Blair Witch Project has where nothing really happens for the first 30 or 40 minutes. Right, right. And nothing super... There's so much extra exposition that's not needed that you're mm-hmm. like, okay, this could have been summed up a lot better. Right, exactly. Yeah, I you know, I didn't even think about the time, you know, because usually in these, in these kind of stories they have, you know, the friend dies and they show that six months of the grieving period. They do the funeral scene, mm-hmm. they do the planning of the trip. Oh, should we do this? Well, this is what 
I guess his name is John. This is what John would have wanted to do. No, no. And then yep. they end up, you know, and then cuts the scene of him waking up. But I think, yeah, you're 100% right. I, I'm glad they didn't do that 30, 45 minutes of build up to the hiking scene. And that sometimes, you know, people get too wrapped up in the exposition and they can, yeah. uh, you know, they can sum it up with, you know, the, a montage of he died. It's, you know, that's sad. Let's get to the trip. Yeah. And also, I think it's a really good example of um, kind of showing their relationship rather than telling us their relationship. Because mm-hmm. in the first 30 minutes when they're hiking and they're kind of like realizing like whoever thought taking a shortcut was a good idea was clearly fucking wrong because we mm-hmm. see how quickly things go downhill. Right. Uh, but we kind of just like we pick up on a little on the nuances of their relationships and how the tension has just been. It's not that there's now tension. It's that tension between them has like been building since Right. Their friend got killed. And like, yeah. we start to see as the situation becomes more dire, certain people start saying certain things to one another that they've kind of been uh, holding in for right. however many years. Right, right, right. Yeah, it, it's kind of people's, you know, I, I guess, every, and, and groups, I mean, we could, we could probably stick to our friend group. Everyone kind of has <laughs> this archetype that they fall into. And, mm-hmm. you know, during, you know, when they're out drinking in the beginning of the movie, you kind of saw like what what character type they fell into, and then yeah. during the initial hike um, before they took the shortcut, you could still kind of see it because they're like, "Oh, this person's going to start complaining. I don't want to hear him complain the whole time." And then those personality traits were just exacerbated as it moved forward until, like you said, the breaking point. It was just kind of over for them, I guess. What did you think of the uh, of the core group themselves? Like, did you find that their relationship was like very believable, or did you kind of think it was? What, I'm just interested to see like what you thought I, of that. It seemed believable. I think. Yeah. Were they actually good friends? Like the characters, were they good friends? I would say no. But like, mm-hmm. because that whole time, even even when they initially started drinking, you know, that first scene where they're at the bar, the the friendship already seemed strained. Um, Luke kind of seemed like the odd man out. He wanted to go and still party and, and do whatever. Yeah. Everyone else had kind of grown up. And mm-hmm. so it was, I think the friendship was already strained prior to that, but then definitely now when they got lost in the woods. But as far as their interaction with each other, I, I found it fairly believable. I thought yeah, no, I th- it wasn't fake, you know. Definitely, again, on a rewatch, I appreciated kind of like the rapport that they have with one another. Like they're comfortable enough that they can bullshit with each other and they can mm-hmm. pick at each other's kind of insecurities. But then realizing that their friend that dies is basically the one that is the core of the group. And right. chances are uh, some of these people would not be friends at all if it weren't for that one person, which is mm-hmm. something – it's like a group dynamic that I think as we get older, like the more that we – distance ourselves from like our college years i find that there are some people that you probably haven't talked to since you were in college and it's like oh i only really talked to them because they were friends with so and so or kind of just i it was an interesting dynamic between characters that is not something that i really kind of thought about or picked up on Mm -hmm. on a first watch and kind of just seeing that bar scene kind of like you said where they're bullshitting with each other and they're kind of like you can see where the prickles of certain relationships are and then Mm -hmm. seeing where those go once they're actually faced with some kind of adversity or in other words, being stalked by a gigantic right. Nordic monster. Yeah. Uh, how that kind of just like reveals everything and that comes to the forefront. Right. And I, I like the, the, the kind of sense of reconciliation that like, you know, the two characters who seemingly hate each other, hated each other the most, they were together for the longest time in the movie. And yeah. then they, you know, they looked out for each other 
Um, so even though things are said really hurtful, almost hateful things, um, they still kind of looked out for each other. And I think, I think that's what made their characters believable was that, you know, even though they didn't like each other, you know, they still were friends and longtime friends. Yeah. I mean, this, and to go from that kind of just the first part of the movie is very much set around these characters and analyzing their friendship and their relationships. Well, friendship might be a strong word for some of them, but Mm. Just kind of the relationships and we get the lay of the land with that. And then it has a very kind of seamless transition into getting into the creepier aspects of the movie and the horror, the real horror aspect of the movie where they come across a couple of runes that are carved into trees and then yep. they have that fateful night spent in the cabin. Yeah. Uh, that really that really ties into the uh, the Blair Witch kind of oh, uh, yeah. allusions or homages that uh, we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um that I thought was really well done just in terms of like scaling the scares. Yeah. Because I feel like definitely with a lot of, especially like Netflix movies, a lot of times these movies have a tendency to kind of like blow their load early and just show the monster right away or something. Right. But we get so few actual glimpses of the monster for almost an hour, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's what made it um, more effective, made the monster more effective because you don't really see the monster until pretty much the end of the movie. And yeah. then, but I, I thought it was, you know, a witchcraft movie mm-hmm. pretty much up until I saw the monster because it had all the symptoms of a witchcraft movie, the rune, the sacrifice cabin and, you know, the trails and, you know, they found actually another cabin later on. And so I didn't, I didn't pick up on the monster aspect until, you know, they're getting snatched and, you know, hung up in right. trees and everything. So I think they did a really, just the pace of the movie, like you said, was able to build up the suspense. And once you saw the monster, I don't think it was, frankly, I didn't find it as scary um, mm-hmm. than if it was, you know, a, a witchcraft or a demon movie. But right. I felt that it built, there's always that question of, you know, when they're sleeping and when the monster was stalk, stalking them, is it, who's, who's it going to get next? You know, where mm-hmm. is it? How is, you know, all that. But I think they showed just enough to keep us interested, but not enough where we kind of get desensitized too early. Yeah, that's a great point too. Because again, another problem with a lot of horror movies is, especially monster movies, is that they shoot too much early on, and then by the time you get to the third act, you're like, okay, let's wrap this up. Like I've seen everything that you could possibly show me. Like this right. is no longer scary. Right. Yeah. I basically like I've seen behind the curtain, so I know what the monster looks like and what it's capable of. Right. Uh, but what I really appreciated again was on a rewatch was when they go to the cabin, just how much they focus on the psychological aspect of it and how. Mm-hmm. Instead of showing us the monster too early, they show us the the types of ways in which the monster can actually like terrify them mm-hmm. and basically make them break down their willpower. And that we see, especially in Luke's case, the monster is tapping into like his past trauma and his past right. fears and that he keeps hallucinating that he sees the store where his friend was killed. Right. Um, and they have that awesome shot that they actually they cut back and forth to a couple of times where we see the store but then you can still see the woods in the background or you yeah. see like the shelves are next to trees and they've got yeah. the luminescent lights that are hanging, but they're not hanging by anything. They're kind of just like suspended in midair in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, those types of little things I think really helped with the pacing in that regard. Yeah. And I think it kept it, it kept you in the woods. Um, yeah. And sometimes during flashbacks, uh, if you're not paying attention or you kind of get confused, um, you know, uh, quick side stuff. I watched, uh, in the tall grass uh, mm. on Saturday. And that movie was, I think an issue with that movie was that there's no continuity. Um, right. And I felt if you do flashbacks, 
you know, there, of course there has to be some sort of continuity. And mm -hmm. I mean, this is the first time where in a ritual um, where a flashback was built into the present, like literally built into the environment. Mm -hmm. So you never forget yeah. that, oh yeah, this is okay. This is a memory. And it's like, all mm -hmm. right, this is a memory that, you know, the monster is showing. And uh, I think I thought that was very, very effective. That's a fantastic point. You're right. Because so many times we see or we hear in interviews like, oh, we want the setting of the movie to become a character that's almost as central as the actual characters in the movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But a lot of time, how often is that actually the case? It's kind of just like a talking point a lot of time. Right. But you're right. right. And this, we're never taken out of that setting. And it's never, it's never replaced with another setting, basically, kind of like you said, in a flashback or anything like that. It's like, mm -hmm. we're, we're always very aware of where we are. And yep. that actually just kind of reinforces the supernatural aspects of the movie in that he's having this hallucination within the woods themselves. It's not as if he's in a dream state. It's as if, oh, no, this is like his reality right now. Right, right. Even though he's asleep, which I think that's really central to, again, kind of making the woods the focal point of the film and making it a character that in some ways is more important than right. some characters. Right. Um, and, and And since you mentioned that, I realized that there's up until you actually see the monster. Um, I would, you know, up until you see the antagonist, which would be the monster or the witch, you know, you kind of feel that the woods is sentient, that the woods has them trapped, not mm -hmm. the monster stalking them. And I think, right. yeah, having the, the setting as a character is, is 100%. I mean, the, the way the woods, uh, the way the setting was written into the movie, I would definitely, you know, believe that as a character. Yeah, so going back to the cabin, I mean, they did a good job bringing that tight claustrophobic wood to even a tighter, more claustrophobic cabin, you know, because they were, yeah. it's not like two people could go upstairs and sleep in that room or they couldn't spread out because that totem was in there. Right. Um, so they took a scary space, made it smaller, made it scarier. I think that was, you know, that, that was probably one of the, I, one of my favorite scenes um, because one, it's set up the rest of the movie and it also kind of pushed the character development along or the character deterioration along um yeah for the rest of the movie yeah and i think also again like going back to the different psychological ways that the monster is able to have a presence without actually revealing itself is really great and we kind of see like the unofficial leader of the group is hutch mm -hmm. who is the only one that basically tries to play like the middleman between everybody because we have Luke and we have um, Dom. Uh, Dom. Yeah. Yep. Luke and Dom that are continually going at one another the whole time. And he's basically the middleman. Mm -hmm. But even he has a big reaction like he pisses himself because his nightmare is so terrifying. And I think right. it's interesting to see a character that is sort of designated as the unofficial kind of like alpha of the group. I'm leading everything. He's the only right. one that has a knife and they're in yeah. the woods, which is like to see him be like brought down to the level that the rest of them are just, it makes it feel very real in that like everybody has this kind of romanticized idea that if stuff went some, like if shit went down somewhere, like I'd be able to handle myself. And then it's like, no, even the alpha in every group, right. if they're faced with this like unimaginable terror, they're going to be an equal to anybody else that's experiencing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a great point because it seems like the I think after after the cabin scene, Hutch was definitely um, machismo trying to puff his chest out, act tough, whatever. Um, as they're walking you can away, tell he's a little shook. Yeah, yeah. As he's walking away, he's like um, Phil. It was definitely the quiet. I, I would have liked to see more of Phil. Um, yeah, 
kind of develop his character. But I think having one quiet, kind of timid character is able to is a good contrast for Hutch. You know, I'd say between the four of them, Luke and Dom definitely contrast each other. Hutch and Phil definitely mm-hmm. contrast each other. But yeah, after that cabin scene, Hutch was like, "Look, I don't want to talk about it. Let's just get out of wood. I don't want to be here anymore." Uh, yeah. Even though, even though it was his idea, um, mm. and he also doesn't. At one point, they someone asked like, "Whose idea was this?" And they're like, "No, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you." And they start blaming. Hutch doesn't say anything. You know, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't. He didn't say, "Oh, it was my idea to take the shortcut." He just kind of shuts the hell up. <laughs> he takes a back yeah. seat, which is you know a turning point for his character. Yeah, that's also a fantastic uh, moment that kind of again shows how their relationships are all crumbling as mm-hmm. things become more intense. It's like he's expecting, Luke is expecting Dutch to stand up for him at a certain point and be like, it's not my fault, except right. he doesn't say anything. And it's yeah. kind of like that realization that it's like, it's almost worse that he didn't say anything mm-hmm. in that instance. Cause it's essentially just backing somebody else up that's saying right. like, dude, it's your fault that he got killed. And then later he even asks him like, do you think it's my fault? And he still can't give him an answer. He's like, I don't know. All right. Again, it, that's almost worse than hearing the answer that you don't want to hear. Right, right. In a lot of ways. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned you mentioned that after this scene, they find another cabin, mm-hmm. and I feel like that could have been such a cop out moment. Like, oh, let's add another ten minutes onto the length of the movie, yeah. and let's have another situation in a cabin. And it's like, hey, should we investigate? And then he's like, hell no, I'm not going to go in there <laughs> yeah. after what we just went through. Like, yeah, it was such all- a it was such a fantastic way of just subverting the expectation that we. I mean, I assumed it's like, oh, great, we're going to get another cabin sequence. But it's like, no, we're going to keep this moving. We already hit upon that. And you kind of get a brief moment of levity that plays out better because it kind of gives us this brief moment to like have a laugh before things truly like go crazy. Right, right. And my, I have an issue with some of these thrillers or some uh, even slasher movies where the, you know, I I understand that fear uh, makes people lose all sense of judgment. But it seems like as the movie goes on, the protagonists have no sense of judgment at all. There's no, they're like, oh, there's a cabin. Let's go in there. Let's try to find supplies or whatever, which makes sense. But if you just came from a haunted cabin, why would you go into another one? And, you know, moving forward in that scene, I think after Hutch uh, is taken, they get to a creek and they see footprints. Um, and some movies, they follow the footprints because, oh, we, there are people here. Let's find help. And that's when they get mm-hmm. trapped. Instead, um, they see the footprints and they were like, we're not, no, we're not going that way. We don't, <laughs> we don't know who those people are. Uh, let's just yeah. keep going. Keep going on the path that Hutch told us. Um, he's been right so far. Let's just keep going southwest, whatever. It made the movie more tolerable because I, I oftentimes find myself watching it and they just get, they just keep making dumber and dumber decisions after their mm-hmm. initial, you know, fatal one that put them in the situation to begin with. Right. Yeah, that's definitely, we've definitely seen a shift kind of in, just the way horror movies are made in the sense that we're not having people do things for the sake of a scare. It's kind of like the scares feel more organic to the situation that they're right. in instead of be like, hey, let's roll the dice on another haunted cabin after we clearly didn't learn our lesson from like 15 minutes ago. Right, right. But you you mentioned the, uh, the footprints and they see like the pail of water. And one of the like sub- most subtle, scary parts of that movie for me is he notices that there are trees that are being cut down in a specific manner. And yeah. it's like, we haven't we don't see any people until the last I think thirty minutes of the movie, and it's just right. like, well, who cut down these trees and why did they cut them down in this specific way? And it's just like one of those little nuances, and along with like the runes being carved into the trees, even though that's a little more uh, in your face, it's a, it's a little yeah. little dip, more difficult to miss. But it's kind of like 
clearly there's some type of structure or some type of order to the way that these woods operate and mm-hmm. they just don't understand any of it and right. not getting an explanation right up front kind of just helps facilitate this idea that like this we should not be here but it's yeah. not that they're finding bodies in the trees the entire movie like they find that i think it's a is it a deer or a bear yeah it's an uh, elk car- th- yeah yeah it's an elk they find an elk carcass in the tree but then we're not given another six of those or we're not given like they immediately see the people and skeletons in the trees. Like, right. again, it kind of just speaks to the scaling of all the scares being really well done that it just complements the pacing really, really well. Right, I thought. right. And there's definitely there's a lot of questions as you watch the movie, because I believe Hutch mentioned uh, as soon as they got into the woods that there were logging camps that, you know, that's when I first when I only saw the, the runes, I figured, oh, maybe it was loggers you know, tagging something. When he saw the cabin, I was like, okay, could be loggers, could be hermits, whatever it is. And then, you know, you saw the, the idol or the totem, and then you saw all these pathways. And I found myself like, okay, maybe, maybe it is loggers. Maybe it's a whole logging trail. And it's not, it's, it's, you know, um, the your, cult. Ra- your rationalization start falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. So it's not loggers. It's not an old logging trail. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's newer and it's it's more on purpose, you know, definitely a darker purpose behind it. Yeah. And I think, again, one of the little kind of moments that kind of adds to the general creepiness of that setting is when they find that buried tent mm-hmm. and they fuck because when the, before they go into the woods, they do find a uh, like an old VW bus. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that thing's been there for like 50 years or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. all the windows have all been smashed out and there's like wildlife growing through it. And then they find a tent that's basically been buried by the moss that's been there so long and the wallet that they find has a credit card that has an expiration date of like 1984 or something right. it's one of those yeah, things yeah. that's just like plenty of people have come through here for the ages but clearly not all of them have left and it's no. just one of those little moments that again without having this big in your face scare it kind of just again weaponizes our fear of the woods mm-hmm. or at least mine this idea yeah. that if you go off the beaten path you're going to be you might go missing forever. Like right. I had an experience, my turn for an anecdote. Uh, I was in the woods playing like ultimate frisbee with people a couple months ago. They were like, oh yeah, you can, there's like a outhouse back there. You can go piss in. And I got turned around on my way back. I have no fucking clue where I am. And it was like, <laughs> right. sure. I had a cell phone, which is like, yeah, I would eventually, but it's just this idea that if you take your eyes off of, or you lose your sense of direction for a moment, like you, you might be living here for the rest of your life. Right. Kind of right. Idea. And then all these, uh, all of a sudden, all the horror movies that you watch come flooding back. <laughs> it's like, exactly. What, what's going to happen just, when the sun goes down? Yeah, I start hearing the Friday the Thirteenth music in my head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, typically I'm not I'm not a huge horror movie guy, uh, mm-hmm. just because you know I don't like to spend my free time being uncomfortable. But <laughs> <laughs> but I I felt that this was a good blend. Like like you said, it paced the scares, so it wasn't just like super aggressive in the first. 20 30 minutes um and you could kind of not necessarily build up the tolerance but like my curiosity kind of took over yeah it was kind of it was suspenseful but i was more curious than scared or nervous or or anxious which Mm -hmm. you know it i felt that it was was a pretty solid movie it's definitely something that i'd rewatch or you know I, i would give it you know or recommend it to someone else who is in that middle ground of not a big horror fan or something they could get behind. It's definitely a movie that I think can bridge the gap for a lot of people. Like you yeah. said, that, like you, that it's like horror is not necessarily my thing. It's like, but every once in a while there's going to be a horror movie that comes along that like 
kind of hits that sweet spot for you. Yeah. Uh, and Bruckner actually had, I was listening to an interview with him and he had this quote where he says he likes making genre movies like this because we all have these kind of expectations about what they're capable of. But then when they do something unexpected and that it makes it that much more impactful. And I think right. that by having the monsters have a majority of the time spent in the last 30 or 40 minutes of the movie makes it even that more effective. And like, I don't know about you, but I love the monster design in this movie. Oh yeah. Like, again, That's great. it's not necessarily super creepy. Like you said, like if it was more grounded, like a, like, like it was just witches or something mm -hmm. like that. Sure. But at the same time, like the design is so perfect, especially for like, if you told me that some demon creature lived in the woods, like I would assume that's what it would look like. Right. Right. They, and yeah, they, I think they did a great job. And I think it was also interesting how they tied in, they brought some Norse mythology um, yeah. to, to reality. And that if they said, oh, this is, you know, the bastard son of Loki, that's exactly what I, <laughs> what I would imagine. Right. And yeah, <laughs> and you know, it was, there was a, uh, there's a sense of sentience in the monster. It wasn't just, a, you know, a, a bloodthirsty. It wasn't just running loose. Right, right. It wasn't bloodthirsty. It wasn't mindless. There was purpose behind what it did, even though they never explained why it hung bodies and trees. Um, but, you know, there's a moment where Luke was setting fire to the camp. The monster came in. He spoke with one of the um, cultists. And then, I mean, he ended up killing everybody. But mm. there's a moment where there's an interaction between the monster and, and one of the cultists. And I felt that it, it brought a sense of purpose to the monster besides... Mm -hmm. just killing randomly whoever it crossed. And that probably would have made the monster feel forced then by the end of it. The entire movie feels like there's earlier something in the backgrounds that's there's a way to the way that these woods work. Yeah. And there's like an order to everything, even if they don't understand it, like everything is being done for a purpose. It's not mm -hmm. randomized. So if the monster came in then and just starts tearing through people at the end of the movie, everything he sees, it would kind of feel forced, I think, in a way that it doesn't come across here. Right. And like you said, in uh, the interaction that the monster has with the cultist, it also has an interaction with Luke at the end where it does that weird thing where it stands up on its hind legs mm -hmm. and it kind of, it looks like the totem basically yeah. where it starts like contorting its body and he tries to stand up and it like pushes his face down into the mud, but it doesn't kill him. So it kind of, again, reinforces this idea that like he's been marked to become a worshiper. Yeah. That's kind of like what those, I guess the puncture marks that he gets in his chest early on. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the mar the monster marking him mm -hmm. for like to become a cultist, I guess. Right. Yeah, the sense of order because that that night he was supposed to participate in the ritual, uh, and right. you know, and I yeah, I, I think not not necessarily make it more believable, but kind of grounding the monster, grounding the cultist in order and a hierarchy almost makes makes it more enjoyable for me when movies are made to be violent just for the sake of violence. It really kind of mm. takes away the impact, you know, the impact of it because there are like, you know, the torture movies and, and slasher films where the the villain or the monster is cutting swaths through everyone in town. But, you know, you could say, oh, he's, you know, a psychopath or he was, you know, tortured, he's possessed. But having, you know, the cultists worship the, uh, the, the monster and the, and the monster being sentient, not just some, you know, beast they're trying to, to appease, um, that, that sense of purpose may, just makes it more enjoyable for me. Like, I can understand the violence, um, but if right. it's just somebody with a big knife decapitating people because they like it, I, I don't know. It's it just not, that's not entertaining. There's, There's no a justification for everything. Yeah, yeah. 
And definitely, I mean, it factors in the fact that you are invested in those characters. Like mm-hmm. if they didn't spend, that's one of the biggest problems with movies that are just like over, overtly violent for the sake of being overtly violent in that there's no time spent in developing the character. So at the end of the day, you don't really give a shit about what's happening. All right, all right. But in this, like so much of the time is spent developing those characters and you're mm-hmm. actually invested in them. And then to have the violence backed up by some type of reasoning that's actually sound, that makes the entire thing kind of like more cohesive and for you to be more invested in what's happening. Right, right. And now that I, you know, you're talking about character development and I'm thinking back to most of the movie is these guys walking through the woods. You know, like uh, if you were to explain this to, to someone else, it's like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of guys walking through the woods and they get, you know, they're, they're getting stalked by a monster. Not not a whole lot happens. You know, there's like that background noise of, of the monster going and, they, you know, they see the runes. But a lot of it is them walking and talking, interacting, and you see clips of the monster throughout. Most of the time, that would be super boring. Mm-hmm. I can't really imagine watching people hike through the woods and maybe there's a monster or whatever. But to mm-hmm. he does a very effective job splicing in those little action sequences to keep it entertaining or keep my attention. Because there are a few times where I noticed that my attention was waning from it. And then all of a sudden, you know, the monster's here or it's dark and I need to set up camp. And so then, you know, my attention comes back. It's like, all right, so it's dark out. The monster's coming back. What's going to happen? And then it's, you know, 10, 15 minutes of them talking shit, you know, giving each other a hard time and walking through the woods. So I think, I think that's an effective way to ebb and flow the movie and basically kind of bore me a little bit and then pique my interest <laughs> right away. Right. Yeah. De- I mean, definitely. I agree. If you were to describe this movie to somebody that this is the thing where it's like, you can recommend this movie to people that are on the fence about horror movies, mm-hmm. but you better highlight what about specifically is great about it because just on its premise alone, like you said, it's a guys walking through the woods, there's a monster stalking them. That's not necessarily going to grab an audience, somebody that is like 50, 50 on horror movies or even, right. 40, 60 on horror movies. But when you kind of speak to the fact that David Bruckner does such a great job of kind of playing with our expectations of what we're going to get and then giving us little moments, like you said, where maybe our interest starts to wane because it's very just kind of matter of fact, like we know we're anticipating kind of, oh, the mon- we're going to see the monster, they're going to run this and that. But then at the same time, we're so invested in these character development and then the way that the scares are paced that actually does a fantastic job of retaining our interest for the hour and 35 hour and 40 minute runtime. In wrapping up, uh, was there any last, any scene that we didn't mention that you kind of like stood out to you? Um, when, when he was in the camp, um, I, I was kind of not really frustrated, but having that one, I, I would have liked a little more explanation on that one cultist who could speak English, um, mm-hmm. kind of where she came from. She did mention that the, the monster gave him um, a naturally long life. Um, so maybe she was there for a long time, but I, I would have liked to got to know that character a little bit more. And then maybe I think they, and also all those living skeletons, the mummies up in that attic room. But other than that, I, I think it was wrapped up really well. I was kind of happy that Luke didn't have that turnaround. He, he kind of had that stand up to the monster moment, but he also didn't that baggage of his, of, kind of watching his friend die. So I think that made it a lot more human. Absolutely. Uh, I have a theory on that woman. I think that woman was the wife of the guy whose wallet they found. 
Oh, okay. This is just speculation on my part, yeah. but maybe I, I always thought that the monster got the husband and the kids and that he marked her uh, okay. and that it's been so long, but she still knows English. So right. she's like somewhat sympathetic to him. Okay. Maybe because they talk about how like the Nordic people there, they have these extend, extended lifespans and that kind of speaks to like the mummy monsters that they see in the attic. Mm-hmm. Just because your life is longer doesn't mean that you're not going to end up like a mummy for maybe a thousand years or something right. like that. That's oh, kind of yeah. just that was my thinking. But uh, yeah, this was a I, I appreciated having the opportunity to uh, return to this because this is definitely a movie that I think again is in Netflix. I think does such a poor job of marketing a lot of their movies because mm-hmm. this is a movie that came and went. And if you weren't like a horror fan that kind of like follows a lot of horror news like I do, you probably would have missed this and like you couldn't be blamed for it. So I was. Right. Thanks for giving me another opportunity to oh, yeah. uh, rewatch this and talk no, about thanks it. For, thanks for suggesting it. Yeah, no problem, man. Appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem, anytime. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.